Our scripture reading today is found in your bulletin. It's from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that uh, you chose uh, to enter um, our life. And consequently, Lord, you experienced all the things that we experience. Uh, You didn't remain safely in heaven above lobbing down advice, but uh, you came down and attended weddings and went to funerals and uh, wept and uh, healed people who were sick. Uh, got tired. And so, Lord, thank you that you understand that you're a compassionate high priest who we can come to with our joys and our sorrows. Uh, Lord, we thank you joyfully uh, for the wedding of uh, Stephen Petrie and uh, Kelly Philnow yesterday. Uh, We grieve, Lord, with Melissa Wright at the funeral of her sister Lindsay yesterday. And uh, we look and hope to you for our sister Allie dire as she has her hopefully final PET scan this week. We ask, Lord, that that scan would come up clear and that she would be free to go to Prague and to serve you, that we would be able to send her out as our missionary in January. And Lord, we pray now as we enter your word uh, that you would speak the truth in love to our hearts and grant us the glorious freedom of the sons and daughters of God uh, to need you more. Uh, today than we did yesterday. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, uh, today as we continue our sermon series on delighting in our dependence based on Dr. Kelly Capick's book, You're Only Human, uh, we come to the topic of humility. And as our passage uh, today makes clear, humility is a central Christian virtue. Paul, writing to the Philippians, begins chapter 2 by saying, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And what's the purpose? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. I love the way St. Augustine puts this in the quote on the front of your bulletin when he said, if you should ask me what are the ways of God, I would tell you that the first is humility, the second 
is humility. And the third is humility. Not that there are no other precepts to give, but if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are meaningless. So, what is humility? Well, in his chapter on this topic, Dr. Capick points out that Christians have often mistakenly grounded our need for humility in our sin. We think that we need to be humble because we're sinful. And while that's true, that we are sinful and that that should be conducive to our humility, that's not actually the basis for Christian humility. Because the standard for Christian humility, as Paul makes clear in our passage today, is Jesus himself. And Jesus didn't have any sin. And so, look at what Paul says in verse 4. Everyone should not look to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a, the, on a cross. So, what is the basis of Jesus' humility? Well, the basis of Jesus' humility, Paul explains, was his choice to become a dependent creature by embracing human limits. He didn't come down here like a Marvel superhero. Instead, he became gentle and lowly and meek and mild. What Paul is explaining here is that even though Jesus was the only human being to exist before he was born as a divine person, as the only begotten eternal Son of God, co-equal with the Father and Spirit in glory and honor and power and might, when he chose to become human, he emptied himself of those divine attributes, and he took on full humanity. Jesus himself taught this in John 8 when he explained to his Jewish contemporaries, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. What, what are they claiming to have the right to stone Jesus for? Well, they're claiming to have the right to stone Jesus for blasphemy. Because when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus was adopting the personal name of God, the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. When God said to Moses, who should I tell the Israelites is sending me to them to promise that they're going to be delivered from slavery in Egypt and brought into this promised land. And the God who met Moses in the burning bush said, tell them, I am sent you. And so when Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am, they pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy, and Jesus doesn't use his divine power to defend himself. But instead, he hides from them because he's embraced human limits. 
And so when Paul says in our passage today, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, he's explaining that in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the living God who introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush chose to humble himself by taking on human finitude and allowing him to experience all of our limits. Which is why Dr. Capick defines humility this way. Humility consists in a recognition of and rejoicing in the good limitations God has given us. Even if there had never been a fall into sin, humility would still have the essential character of gratitude for our dependence on God and for His faithful supply of our need. So how do we see Jesus rejoicing in human limitations? Well, first and foremost, even though Jesus is divine, He delighted to depend on His Father for everything. He put it this way in John chapter 5 when he said, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing and will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. Think about that for a second. Jesus is explaining that even though he has the authority over life and death itself, he chooses not to use it apart from his father. Um, Why not? He won't do anything apart from God. Well, because humility is conducive to intimacy. And Jesus enjoys perfect intimacy with his father. Francine Clagburn puts it this way, the ability to give to another without resentment and in turn receive from that other without embarrassment is what intimacy is all about. Jesus lived that way with his dad. And that wasn't the only person Jesus wanted to experience intimacy with. He also wanted to experience intimacy with us. That's why he became human and not an angel. So when Jesus embraced humility by needing other people, he did so on purpose. When he needed to feed 5,000 people, he depended on a young man who had brought a sack lunch. When he needed rest after ministering to those 5,000 people, he depended on his apostles to sail a boat across a lake in a storm while he took a nap in the back. When he was exhausted traveling into Samaria, he stopped in the middle of the day by a well and sent his apostles ahead to buy dinner, and he asked a Samaritan woman to provide him with a drink of water. When, after a year of ministering in Galilee, his ministry needed financial support, Jesus depended on a group of women to pay for their ministry. And when Jesus hung on the cross at the end of his life and he needed somebody to take care of his mom, he asked John if he would do it. And now, Jesus depends on us. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, Paul says, And Christ himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, 
some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. You know, the story of Paul's uh, conversion makes it clear that Jesus could do ministry without us, right? He appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus himself as a resurrected human and shared the gospel with Paul. Uh, so Jesus could work apart from us, but he doesn't. Instead, he calls us to be his hands and feet in the world. He calls us to be the people who share the good news of the gospel. Uh, he uses me today to share the good news with you. He could do it without me, but he doesn't. Instead, he uses me to do it, and he uses you to do it here in the city and in your home and in your workplace. And he does that. Why? Well, because of the intimacy that he gets to experience with us when he chooses to do the work of the kingdom of God through us rather than apart from us. He put it this way in John 15, 5. He said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. And likewise, God himself, even though he could do it without us, he chooses to do nothing himself that he can possibly do through another. He's a master delegator through and through because at heart, our God is a giver. It's his nature to want to include us in what he's doing, which is why human limits are a gift. In fact, they're the original very good gift that God gave us, and the tempter, the evil one, talked us out of believing. He tempted us to believe that we could be like God, that we could escape our limits. And in doing so, he cost us our relationship with God. Because humans are designed in the image of God like a glove is designed in the image of a hand. Our need perfectly fits God's fullness. God fills us with himself because we need him. Paul explained it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. See, Paul said, hey, our problems as apostles are God's opportunities. Our need is God's fullness. That's the way it works. So, like Jesus, we grow in humility by learning to rejoice in our limits. First, by depending on God, then by depending on one another, and finally, by depending on our neighbors. First, we need to learn how to depend on God. Well, how? Uh, by developing a prayer life. Psalm 127, 1 and 2 says, Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchmen stay alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. What wakes you up in the middle of the night? What do you find yourself just ruminating over? Right? What, what are these problems that you find yourself trying to so solve or these scripts 
that you're running through your head. God's inviting you to lay that down. And he's saying, hey, instead of spending your time at, you know, two and three in the morning ruminating on this stuff, why don't you just like pray about it? Why don't you just give it to me? Why don't you trust that unless I build a house, you're ruminating in vain? It took me a long time to learn this. When I first started Hope, I had big plans for Hope. And God would always be like, no, 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 not going to do that. Nope, not going to do that. Uh, and then after my first sabbatical, I bumped into this text, and I started learning uh, that I needed to allow God uh, to lead the way, and that if, if God would open the door, I'd walk through it, but my job was mostly to pray and to wait. And I learned something important after that. Uh, Bono put words to it in an interview when he said this. He said, a number of years ago, I met a wise man who changed my life in countless ways. Large and small, I was always seeking the Lord's blessing. I was saying, you know, I have a new song. Look after it. I have a family. Please look after them. I have this crazy idea. And this wise man said, stop. He said, stop asking God to bless what you're doing. Get involved in what God is doing because it's already blessed. And Bono discovered something important that's articulated by uh, the vicar of the Indian church, right? Which is um, when you want to get involved in what God's doing, there's a place that you're going to find him. You're going to find him at the end of the line, right? That's where Jesus is. Um, why, right? Why does he end up back there? Well, because in a perfect family, right? In a perfect family, the wisest and strongest person would be taking care of the weakest and most confused person, right? That's what would happen. I love Holly and Davis and Laurel fully. And so who do I give my attention to? Well, if one of them is hurting, that's the person who gets my special attention. If one of them is wounded or sick or financially struggling or sad, then the mercy of my own heart draws out a special affection for them. And your heavenly father operates the same way. So when I came back from this lesson, right, learning, uh, hey, I don't want to bang my head against a wall anymore here at Hope. I just want to do what you're doing. Guess what God did? Um, I was here one Sunday and a couple came up to me one Sunday. And they're like, hey, we've got a friend who's trying to start this ministry in town. Um, he'd love to meet with you. I was like, okay, great. So I went over to Fuel Pizza on Selwyn Avenue and met Jimmy McQuilkin. And he's like, you've probably never heard of this thing. It's called Urban Promise. I'm wanting to start this ministry in town. I'd interned with Urban Promise as a junior in college. And I'd been praying that we would start something like that in this town for years. And I was like, man, I've been looking for you for years. And not long after that, a guy named Matt Avery was coming to Hope. And he's like, hey, man, I've got this crazy idea. I'd like to start this ministry called the Charlotte Fellows. Um, from which we've gotten like half of our leaders uh, over the last 12 years. Um, and so that's what God did with that. And this is why Jesus said this, Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. 
I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And so when you mentor an urban promise kid who would be the first in their families to go to college, you're mentoring Jesus. When you host a fellow as an intern or in your house, you're housing Christ. When you take the time to mourn with your brothers and sisters who are mourning or to rejoice with your brothers and sisters who are rejoicing, you're very near to God. Which brings us to the second way that we learn to embrace humility, and that is by needing other believers. Just as Jesus needed the young man for the lunch and his disciples in the boat and the woman at the well and the women who supported his ministry financially and John to take care of his mom, you and I need each other. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. If the whole body were an eye... Where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe with greater honor, and our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable so that there would be no division in the body, but that members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. See, God has made us to need each other here at Hope. We need each other's gifts and we need each other's needs. Only as we learn to give to one another without resentment and in turn receive from one another without embarrassment will we experience the kind of intimate community God has designed us to be. You know, the simple truth is that I've always been a good motivator and public speaker, but I wasn't a very good pastor when we first started Hope. I liked the attention and the impact of preaching, but I was too impatient for the hard work of real ministry. Thankfully, as we worked on the vision for this church, Matt and I, Guzzy and I, were best friends, and uh, we were writing the vision for Hope, and, and we would email it back and forth to each other um, as we were writing it. He lived in Kernersville, and I lived here in Charlotte. And at the end, we had this 30-page document that described kind of our dream for what hope would become. And I was like, God, that's such a great church. Um, I could never plant that church. Um, the only way that church is going to come into being is if you and Jen quit your jobs and move down here to Charlotte and join Holly and I and we plant this church together. 
I need you guys to quit. And so with a three-week-old baby, Jacob, they quit and moved into the basement of Ken and Ruth Samuelson's house and came down here and helped us start Hope. Hope exists because by God's grace, in one of these rare instances, I was humble enough to admit that I needed the guzzies. Now, that isn't easy to do, but that's why Paul starts our passage off today with this observation. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking in the same way having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. You see, the natural result of a group of Christians embracing humility together becomes oneness of mind, affection, and purpose because of the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit. When we become needy, grace runs downhill. Which is why Dr. Capek rightly observes, humility doesn't simply say, I'm sorry, or please forgive me. Humility also says, I don't know, can you help me, and how should I do this? But boy, is that hard for me to do. When I first took my first job in ministry at Redeemer in Winston-Salem, I was 21 years old, I was super arrogant. I was, uh, thought I was the greatest Christian really ever, really. I thought I was like the Billy Graham of my generation, which they could understand was a major like job hazard, made me a dangerous person to be around. So my boss, Stuart Stogner, bought me a shirt, and it said had one word on it. It said, help. And he made me wear it every Tuesday. I had to walk around Winston-Salem and our offices wearing a shirt that said help on it to uh, grant me the grace of humility and to teach me how to need other people. Um, And he wasn't the only one God used to begin to deliver me from my propensity for sinful self-reliance. Holly also figured out pretty early on that um, I had a problem with admitting that I didn't know something. Um, So whenever she would ask me a question, if I didn't know the answer to the question, I would like pretend I didn't hear her, I would like dodge the question, I would make some vague statement, right? And so she realized early on, oh, you actually hate saying the words, I don't know. Like it really bothers you, doesn't it? And so now, still to this day, she'll say things like, hey, did the mail come yesterday? And I'll be like, I don't know. And she'll go, what? Right? So she just likes for me to have to repeat it because it's conducive uh, to my humility. Well, maybe you're like me, right? Maybe it's hard for you to ask God or others for help or to admit your limits or to love others by needing them, right? Uh, Holly and I discovered pretty early in our marriage that I liked being like, you know, um, a superhero, but I hated being needy. And why is that? Well, because living in a humble life of neediness requires courage in a broken and fallen world. All of us have had experiences where we have needed people who have let us down. Or we've had experience 
where we've needed people and others have shamed us for being needy. It, it can be painful to live a life of need. And that's why Paul tells us where to get the courage to live this way. Look again at verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, the humility that God requires comes from a courage that we can't produce, but that God sent Jesus to produce for us. And so as we fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, what do we learn? Well, we notice what he did in verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. You see, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane and once again said, Okay, Father, what's the plan? What would you have me do? And when he was there, he heard that the plan required a degree of humility and courage that no other human has ever exhibited before. Because the plan was for him to become our sin, for him to endure God's wrath for our sins on the cross and to die so that you and I could see what happens when a human being depends completely on God to do for himself what he cannot do on his own. Because think about what happened. You and I are here worshiping a man who died single and childless and penniless, betrayed by his own apostles, abandoned by his closest friends, uh, declared a heretic worthy of death by his own, the leadership of his own church, tortured to death publicly in a shameful way, why? Why would we worship such a person? Because when he depended on his father completely by giving up his right to call down a heavenly host of angels to defend him, refusing to use his supernatural power in any way, what happened? Well, verse 9 tells us what happened. For this reason, God highly exalted him. And gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus came to reveal the compassionate heart of God, the God who comes through for the meek and has the power to give them the earth. Because God promises that if we'll humble ourselves, he'll come through for us as well. 1 Peter 5, 5-7 says, All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. And in Romans 8, 31 and 32, Paul says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him grant us everything? So what would it look like for you to do this? How could you embrace humility? Could you ask God for what you need could you put yourself in a position to depend on him? 
How about admitting what you don't know or can't do by being so bold as to ask a member of the body here at Hope for help? Could you go even further and begin to glorify God like Jesus did by, uh, with the woman at the well? Um, or could you say, I don't know. Can you help me? How should I do this to a friend or a coworker or a family member this week? Right after a college when I was in a period of deep arrogance and God was in the process of delivering me from that by having friends confront me about my general amount of arrogance, um, I was really sad because I'd lost my dream job. I wanted to be on Young Life staff. And, uh, and it didn't come together because Young Life was too wise to hire an arrogant, self-righteous jerk like myself. Uh, and so I was in Christian counseling and I went home um, for Christmas, actually, and my mom and I, it was kind of the first time we'd talked since I'd started into counseling and the job hadn't quite come together. And um, I decided to do something really wild. When my mom asked me how I was doing, I decided to humble myself and just tell her the truth and not try to be like a superior, I've got it all together, Christian. And I said, well, you know, I'm really lonely and I'm really sad. And that admission opened the door for who my mom at that point was not a Christian. She's now a Christian. But in a real way, our true relationship, the relationship that eventually led to my mom becoming a believer, began with that moment. It began with that admission. When I stopped being a Christian persona and I instead became the broken, humble, sad, and lonely believer that I was and admitted it to my non-Christian mom. Because for the longest time when I was laying tracks on her pillow or doing door-to-door evangelism, God resisted my prideful attempts to share the gospel with my mom. But lo and behold, when I got low, grace ran downhill and met us in the reality of my need for help from her and from others around me. And God can do the same with you. So this is my prayer for you. If you then have any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us and that you came to deliver us from foolish pride and to invite us back into a life of dependence on you as our Savior, on your God as our Father, and on your Spirit as our lover. I pray that out of that, Lord, you would encourage us to grow in the grace of needing one another, that you might receive glory and we might receive good. And we ask this in your name. Amen.